Good morning. Some interesting answers there, weren't there? Quite a few. Uh, and if I haven't met you yet, my name is Chris. I'm the senior pastor here at Covington Baptist Church, and I see a lot of new faces, so welcome. It's good to have you here. If you have not had a chance, please fill out a welcome card and also any prayer requests on the back. I do read through these, and I'd love to hear what you have to think uh, about our service here today. Uh, we're going through a series right now. We're going through the book of Colossians. The, the uh, series is called Rooted Deep, Growing Tall. And we're getting into some deep stuff. We're getting into some, some things that are really going to, uh, probably things you haven't heard before, some, some deeper subjects about Christ and Christology and who, who Jesus is. And, and so we're in uh, week four of the series, and uh, we'll be going for about, about six to eight weeks. I haven't quite see, uh, looked at how far I'm going to go with this, because there's such good stuff in here. It's hard. When I go to study for the message, it's like I'll go two, long, two verses at a time, because there's so much good stuff in this book in this letter that Paul writes. So in this video, you see that this, the question they asked was, you know, how do you get to heaven? And, and if you go around to different people and you ask that question, you're going to get a variety of answers. You're going to get a ton of different answers. Some people say that, you know, this, to get to heaven or, or to have salvation, you have to do something or you have to be a good person. Uh, uh, one guy is, you know, uh, uh, the lady at the end or toward the end, she said, you know, you got to be baptized. You're going to hear things like that. Well, you got to be baptized to be, go to heaven or um, I'll be a good person, do good works. And that's probably the most common view of how to get to heaven. You go, you go around the streets and go ask people just randomly. Put on Facebook, hey, how do you get to heaven? You're going to get thousands of different answers. Now, Paul is dealing with this very issue 2,000 years ago when he wrote this letter. See, in the church of Colossae, there was uh, teachers that were, that were saying that you had to add things or you had to have extra stuff to get to heaven. It wasn't just about Jesus. There was so much more. You had to be a good person. You had to have special knowledge. You had to have special revelation. There's all kinds of stuff that they're claiming that you had to have in order to get to heaven. And so Paul writes this letter attacking uh, uh, dealing with this issue. See, these people are attacking the truth of the gospel. And they're also saying that Jesus wasn't God. So there's a lot of conflict. So Paul writes this letter to these folks. Paul writes this letter to Colossians to defend the supremacy of Christ. And that's what this whole book, the first part of the book is about. And then he goes into some application later on in the second half. Now in the beginning, if you were here the past couple weeks, you would have learned that, that we learned that Jesus is Christ. or Jesus is not only Christ, but he is God in the flesh. And, and Paul starts this section around uh, verse 15. He starts really getting into who Jesus is. And that's what we talked about last week. We saw that Jesus is not only the creator of the world, but he also is the sustainer. He's the supreme ruler. And that's what we talked about last week. So if you missed last week, definitely jump online, read the messages, or listen to the messages, and, and get caught up. Because this is going to be impactful. Last week's really leads you into this week's. Now, Paul explains that, uh, that not only Jesus holds all things together, but also that all things will be reconciled to him. And that's what we're going to look at today. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. Reconciliation, the message of reconciliation is at the heart of what Jesus and who Jesus is, why, why he came here. And so it's very important that we get a, a, a solid understanding of this. Not only as Christians, so we understand it ourselves, but also as we go out into the world. The word reconciliation means to renew a friendship or restore us to a right relationship. So if, if, if uh, I have a, a messed up relationship with a friend, uh, this message of reconciliation is to mend that relationship. 
So Paul is saying that everybody was going to be, uh, that anybody that was going to be saved or reconciled, it must be through Jesus. So in the beginning, he, last week, we established who Jesus was. Now he's saying, look, Jesus is the only way. Now he's getting into some really deep stuff. He's really confronting it, saying, no, look, you guys are saying there's all this other stuff, but no, Jesus is the only way. Christ himself, Jesus himself said it in John 14, 6. It's a very familiar verse. It says, I am, Jesus said this himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's very exclusive, isn't it? I say nobody can come to the Father. Nobody can get to heaven except through Jesus. That's very inclusive. So he's dealing with this stuff right from the beginning in the very first chapter of Colossians. Now, uh, before we get into the sections that we're, we're going to look at, we're going to be looking at 19 through 22 or 23, but we've got to establish something. And Paul identifies himself in this chapter that he is a servant of the gospel. And that's important to take a break and look at that for a second. Paul, Paul calls himself a, a servant of the gospel in verse 23. Because Paul was saved and transformed by this gospel that he's preaching, he had become its servant. Paul, who was saved by this gospel reconciliation, this gospel that he's talking about, he became a lifelong servant. He traveled around preaching this message all around the world, all around the known world. It was that important to him. And he, he became a servant, and he traveled the nations to tell them about how this, this life of reconciliation, this new message, changed his life. This is only appropriate, this is a, an appropriate response for someone who has been truly convinced of the gospel's truth. When we have that, that when we're convinced, it's something that we're going to want to go share, and we're going to want to uh, talk to other people about it, and, and preach, and teach it, and just share it with the world. It's going to be, it's a natural response for somebody who's been changed and reconciled by Christ. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it'll be up on the screen. It says, starting at 18. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see that? The ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God was reconciled, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, this is a letter that Paul also wrote to the Corinthian church. So he's saying it also here, this message of reconciliation. If Christ has saved you, you've been called to be a servant of the gospel. If you identify yourself as a Christian, if you say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you're called to a message of reconciliation and a servant of the gospel. You've been given a very specific ministry. So many people think that, that sharing the gospel is only for the preacher. Come up here on Sunday to preach the gospel. And, and when we go to interview pastors, hey, do you preach the gospel? Yes, we do. And, and it's, a, it's my job. Well, yeah, it is my job. But I'm also, it's your job because it's call, you're called to this message of reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself. And he's chosen us as a people to make that appeal to the rest of the world. Not only is it Paul's ministry, but it's our ministry. Now, if we're going to be ministers of the gospel, if this is true, 
And we're called to be ministers of the gospel, sharing this message reconciliation. Don't you think it's a good idea if we have a solid understanding of this? Don't you think if, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to teach somebody or share the gospel with somebody, you should have some foundational knowledge? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to get into this, this message of reconciliation, and you're going to learn some things. And as a matter of fact, if you take out your Bibles, which I hope you're bringing, or your tablets or whatever, highlight this chapter, chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. And if you do that, and you take those verses... And you learn from this, from last week's and this week's message, you will be able to share the gospel with anybody just with those 23 verses. You'll be able to sit there and go, look, you know what? You say that there's no way to heaven? Let me show you something. Let me show you Colossians. You don't need the Romans world of salvation. You don't need all these different tracts and stuff. This here, last week's and this week's message, will give you that foundation. So that when you get questions about it, look, look Jesus is God. It says it right here. Well, he's not in control of everything. Actually, he is. Look, he's a supreme over all. He's going to reconcile all things to him. You can show these people everything. So this is going to give you some of that foundation, some, some solid teachings. So what are the elements of this message? As we... Look through this. As we look through verses 19 through 23, what are the key components? You know, some of us have been taught this, uh, this you know, ABCs of the gospel presentation. Uh, admit you're a sinner, uh, believe in Jesus Christ, and commit your life to him, or confess your sins. There's different people do different takes. So what, are, what does Scripture say? What are some specific things? So we're going to take a look at these verses, and uh, please follow along on the, on the screen. It says in verse 19, uh, Colossians 1.19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You, who were, you were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you to, or into his own presence, and you are, his, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firm in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim. Before we dig into this verse and this, this, these group of verses here, let's pray, and then uh, we'll dig in. Father God, thank you so much for, your, for everything you do, just the, your salvation, your message of reconciliation, your work in Paul's life, uh, the examples that we see, and thank you so much for the word of God that we get to open it up today, and we ask the Holy Spirit to be here today so we can learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we just ask you to reveal what you need us to learn and, and guide us and mold us and be in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get on to the next, cheers. All right, so as we dig in, the first thing we need to understand is there's a problem. There's a problem between man and God. There's a problem because man is alienated from God. We are completely alienated to God. Now, a lot of people think that, you know, well, it's just kind of a strange relationship. No, we are completely, 100%, 
absolutely alienated from God. Here in Colossians, Paul explains about man's depravity and the natural tendency to separate ourselves from God. In Colossians 21, which we just read, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. That's pretty strong words. Think about this. We're enemies in our minds. So our natural tendencies is to rebel against God. See, right after Adam sinned, the relationship between Adam and creator and, and humanity changed between Adam and God. See, before the fall of mankind, Adam had a great relationship with God. God would walk in the garden with him, spend time with him, um, listen to him. They would share, you know, God would guide him. And, and sin wasn't in the world. But then all of a sudden, Adam sins. Now that relationship changes. Now death is in the world. And that relationship is, is tainted. It's broken. God came looking for Adam after he sinned. And what did Adam do? He hid. He hid in the garden. He ran away from God. He's like, I'm ashamed. Or he hid. From him. And this is a great picture of what man is today. It's the same today as it was back then. We, man has a natural tendency to hide from God. We have this natural tendency to be in a state of constant hiding from God. Sin has infected man so much that it's caused him to separate ourselves from God. We run from him. All mankind is separated from God because of the sin in our lives. In fact, Paul declares that no one truly seeks God. Romans 3.11, Paul says, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So in our natural state, we don't even look for God. We don't even seek after him. We don't go looking for God and say, hey, I want a relationship with God. In that same way, Adam hid from God. People today hide from him as well. And, and see, man still seeks things. They don't seek God, but they still seek. What do they seek? They seek money. They, meet, they seek power. See, there's an emptiness that we're born with. Well, there's an emptiness inside. The separation from God affects us deep down inside. And so when we go through life, there's an emptiness in there. And until God reveals himself through the work of the Holy Spirit, we, just, we try to fill that void in our life through material things. Through partying, through drinking and drugs, through relationships. Some people go through relationships all over, over and over again to try to fill that void. Some people go into work 80 hours a week so they can fill that void. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's status. There's all kinds of things that they do in order to fill this void. See, man's natural tendency is to separate from them, some, themselves from God. As a matter of fact, they not only that, but they start making God in their own image. Not, we're, not that we're created in God's image, which is the truth. We, man naturally goes, you know what? I don't think that's the way God is. So we start dictating what we think God is. And we start making God in our image. And we start making excuses or make, putting characteristics into God that is not what the Bible says. See, they, they make God which they prefer and which they imagine. They put God on this, this you know, this is what I think God is. And I'm right and you're wrong. I'm right and the Bible's wrong. That's the attitude of this. Before we became Christians, a lot of us despised the God of the Bible. We despised it. We were like, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like them or follow that God. It is the sin of man, in man that makes him hide from God and distance himself from him. And man is withdrawn, withdrawn from God because of our evil behavior. 
See, back in that verse, it talks about, about there's uh, this, this, we're at enemies of, in the mind because of our evil behavior. And Jesus talks something very similar. In John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, he talks about this, there's this judgment. The light has come into the dark, or into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the things that, we, that mankind has done is evil and they avoid the light, which is representing God, because of their evil, their, their evil works don't want to be seen in the daylight. When criminals are out, and uh, now I'm not law enforcement, but you guys that are probably would support this, a lot, there's a lot of activity at night with drug dealers and, and criminals. Would you agree with that? Especially going to the cities. There's a lot of stuff. Why? Because they don't want to steal, uh, steal a car in broad daylight. They want to sneak around and be hidden. The same thing's true for the natural tendency of man. We want, our, we want our sins to be hidden, and we don't want that to be seen. But yet, and we, we run from God because of that. See, man's evil behavior compels them to stay away from God. So then when you, when you go and share the gospel with somebody and say, no, you know what, I don't want that. And they, they kind of stand offish. Well, why? They probably have sin in their life that's basically saying, you know what, I don't want to confront that. And that's the way we, as mankind, are. Continuing on in, in John three nineteen uh, verse 20, it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. See, if you do things that are right with God, you're not afraid of people finding out. If I, if I, if I do something wonderful for God and God calls me to do something and I do it, I don't care if it goes on the front page of the, on the paper. It doesn't bother me. Why? Because it's a good thing. Now, if I did some kind of sin and if I had some sinful behavior, do you think I want that on the front page? Do you think I want Daryl writing an article about it? No, I don't think so. See, when we do the good works and we do good things, we go toward God. Because man practices evil, he hates the light. He wants to suppress this idea of a holy God for fear that their deeds are going to be exposed. He suppresses the truth of God because he'd rather live in in his own life apart from God's lordship. He'd rather live and not have to explain himself to God. He'd rather have this total freedom, or at least he thinks it's freedom. He wants to live an unrestrained freedom in his life. In his eyes, this is right, and anything or anyone that interferes is not welcome. And we see that in Psalms, Psalms chapter 2. In fact, Scripture says that a man apart from God, or in God's grace, can do no good works. Apart from God, man cannot do good works at all. That seems kind of harsh. Look at Isaiah chapter 34, verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous, righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our, in, in our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That word, polluted garment, uh, some of your translations will probably say filthy rags. I mean, that's how bad it is. And this is referring to our good deeds. Our good deeds are considered filthy rags in the eyes of God. Our, even our righteousness, even the things that we think, you know what, I'm a godly person, I'm a, I am a righteous person. 
It's considered filthy rags before God. Sin has tainted man so far that no good work comes out of us that is pleasing to God. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That sounds pretty, pretty, pretty hardcore. The scripture seems pretty harsh. How can I say that? How can, you might be thinking, preacher, how can you say that? Come on, there's people that do good things. I have atheist friends that do good things. I have friends that don't go to church, and they're good people. How many, raise your hand if you, if you could say that about somebody. You know somebody that maybe doesn't go to church, but, but they're a good guy, good lady. See, look around the room. Everybody pretty much has raised their hand. See, we can all say that. And, that, and you know what, that's probably true. There's some goodness out there. But God's standard is so high that even our greatest good deeds are filthy in his sight. This is true in part because God requires not only good deeds, but the right heart. You'll hear me say this a lot. It's always about a heart issue. It's about the heart. God wants the heart, not your works. He wants your works too, but he wants your heart, first and foremost. The more important, more important than one's deeds is the heart that they're committed with. Scripture tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the greatest commandment, with all your heart, with all your mind. We call this the, the doctrine of depravity of man. When you look into theology classes and stuff, doctrine of depravity of man is this, this fallen nature that we have, and that's how bad it is. See, sometimes we want to sugarcoat it and say, oh, well, it's not that bad. Well, he's a good person. Like the people on the video, oh, they're good people. I'm sure they have some good qualities and good traits, and there's things, but according to God, it's filthy rags. According to God, my good works, it's filthy rags. There's never been a moment in my life where I've loved God with my whole heart and my whole mind and my whole soul. I've been a believer for 20 years, and there's not been a part where I can fulfill that, not to the way that God wants me to. So even my good works and my good deeds are tainted by motives that are, are to be approved by others. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll give my son a, a birthday gift. And, and yeah, there's a part of me that wants to give it to him because I like the smile on his face. And, and, but you know what I just said? I like the smile on his face, right? Or I give him a nice birthday gift because he loves daddy and he runs over and gives me a hug. And so I get this wonderful hug. So if you really look at it, sometimes deep down inside, the reason why we do good things is what? For our own motivations. Makes me feel good. Give a homeless guy 20 bucks. He gets to get fed. Makes me feel good. I, have I really helped him? I only gave him 20 bucks. I, did I get him off the street? I did it because it makes me feel good. So our motivations a lot of times are self-centered. I fall for, far short from God's plan in my life. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if this is true, if there's this problem, and we are that wretched, and there, we have a holy God, then what's the solution? How can anybody ever be able to go to heaven in the first place? Seems impossible, and it is, outside of Christ. We've looked at the problem, we've seen that man is infected by sin, we see that man is separated from God because of sin, he cannot obey God, he doesn't seek God, all of our good works are filthy rags, so we can't do it by works, we can't get to heaven by works, so what is the solution? How can man be reconciled by God? Look at uh, Colossians 1.22, we've read this already, but we're going to look at it again, now, or, yet now... He has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, 
He has brought you into His own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. Now, I have to say, this is one of my favorite verses, so we're going to dig in, and I'm going to get excited because this is an awesome verse. Okay, how can this be? How can a simple man be holy in God's sight? He declares in this verse, he declares, it's very clear that he declares that through Christ's death, redeemed man now has become without blemish and free of accusation. Did you catch that? Blameless, without blemish. This, this sinful man who has, is wretched and in filthy rags has now become blameless and without accusation because of Christ. Now that deserves an amen. That deserves a shout. That deserves uh, to get excited. Because you know what? No matter what I've done in my past, in my life, I am considered blameless in front of God. Every one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ is considered blameless and without blemish. Oh, that's an awesome verse. So when you show somebody the gospel and you say, look, this is who Jesus is. Look, he's, he's God in the flesh. He's supreme and all these things that we talked about last week. And you get to this verse and you say, look, we're wretched, but now we're blameless. That is a beautiful, beautiful verse. Now, there's a truth that's seen all through Scripture that we learn what, a little bit more about Jesus and how this works. Okay, and it's called uh, substitution, sacrificial substitution. Okay, and it's all through the Old Testament that God set up this, under the Mosaic Law, God set up the sacrificial system. And the Jewish people understood that, that without, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We see that in Hebrews 9, and we also see that all through the Old Testament. Hebrews 9.22, it says, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So there had to be some kind of way to re reconcile this. And this is the message of reconciliation. See, the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. So wages of sin is death. So if death is my penalty, then, and that's a fair judgment. I mean, in, in, in the court system, if, if I murder somebody, I deserve the death penalty or life in prison or something. I mean, that's a fair exchange. If I, if, I, if I do something severe, there is a punishment involved. Well, God says that that punishment of sinning against him is the wages of sin is death. But God, in all his grace, gave us this substitution, this, this system in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was a symbol. It was symbolism for the coming of the Christ. And so what they would do is ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there was a, a system in place. And they would sacrifice a, a lamb that was without blemish, and that, would, and, and that way people could, that, the shedding of that blood would allow people to symbolize the forgiveness of sin, and they would be able to be in the presence of God temporarily. And that way they would have to keep, keep doing that on a regular basis. Now scholars see, uh, believe that this started out in Adam and Eve's time. Now, if you look at it back in Genesis chapter 3, what you'll find is that, that, um, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked in the garden, right? And then they, they hid. Then God starts talking to them, and then all of a sudden they are clothed. And they're clothed with, with animal skins. And the scholars believe that that was the first sacrificial, because something had to die for Adam and Eve's sin, right? So right in the beginning, God instituted that, that, that system, that sacrificial Substitution. 
An animal died, and that's where death ended up in the Garden of Eden. If the wages of sin is death, someone had to die for Adam's sin. However, the sacrificial animal could never take away the sins of the world. It was only a symbol of the future. When John the Baptist came and he started preaching, what did he say to Jesus? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the old system was temporary. But now all of a sudden Jesus comes and John the Baptist says, look, here's the ultimate Lamb of God. He's not this this symbol. Now he takes away all the sins of the world. The Lamb in the Old Testament was a picture, only a picture of the substitution The lamb without blemish was a picture of of being without sin, and people symbolically would receive this, this this sinless life of the lamb. Now, in the future, this was the symbol of the perfect lamb that would die for our sins in the entire world, and that was Jesus Christ. What happened with Jesus, however, was not a symbol. It was reality. See, that's the difference between the Old Testament sacrifice system and the New Testament. Jesus wasn't some symbol or, or, or some myth. It was reality. He literally was the everlasting sacrifice, the everlasting substitution when he died on the cross and took the sins of the people. He took the sins of every single person on the world and he bore the wrath of God onto himself. The payment of every sin of all of, all of life on earth from past to present, he took it at that moment, he took it upon himself. And he took God's wrath and judgment the day he was on the cross. When scripture speaks of reconciliation, it doesn't include uh, the unbeliever, Satan, and his angels. It's only include, it's, there's no universal salvation. That's not what these verses are talking about. Not everybody is going to be saved because scripture talks about places and those. It's only for those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will have the work on the cross applied in their life. It's only when you accept that gift and you acknowledge that gift, and we're going to get into that a little bit in a second, when you acknowledge that gift, that's when it's applied in your life. Jesus bore our sin and the just wrath of God, and we take, this, take on his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Another beautiful verse of salvation. So we could be made right. Not, we're not filthy rags. You know, our good works are not filthy rags anymore. When we come to Christ, we are blame, blemish, blameless, and we're right with God. He took our sins, and we received his righteousness We received his righteousness. This is what Paul means when he says that we are are to be presented holy, blameless, and free of accusation in his sight. Listen to chapter 1, verse 22 again in Colossians. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless and you stand before him without a single fault. Man, that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful verse. So when we say that we're God's holy people, we need to say yes. We need to acknowledge that. Because according to the work that God did on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, we are holy in the eyes of God. 
The only way man can be reconciled was by the substitutionary death of this perfect lamb. And we, now, and we are now acceptable to God because of his perfect son. His righteousness is now a, a, a put into our account. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sinner. He doesn't see this, this sin in our lives. What he sees is Jesus. So how does one become reconciled? So we acknowledge that there's a sin, and we have, you know, we're, we have all this, this problem here of sin, and then we have the solution, but how does that apply for us? How does that equate? Okay, Jesus died on the cross, but how come it applies to some and not the other? To some people and not other people. How do we have this, this relationship renewed? Paul teaches in this text that, that a person is saved through faith in Christ. Scripture elsewhere and everywhere teaches that salvation and reconciliation is strictly by grace and faith. It is by grace we are saved through faith. It is not, it's, a, it's by unmerited favor. God loves us to the point where he uh, gives us this opportunity. We cannot earn it. We cannot work for it. It's a work of grace, and grace gives us the faith to put our trust in Jesus. So if you're going to memorize two or three words, grace, faith, and trust. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, or we have done, so none of us can boast about it. See, it is nothing that we've done. Nothing we've earned. See, a person receives grace by the very act of God. We get a good picture of how Paul responds to the jailer. We, we see this unfold in Acts. In Acts chapter 16, verses 27 through 31, tells a story about uh, Paul is in prison with Silas. And these, uh, an earthquake happens, the door flings open, and this jailer is about to uh, throw himself on the, on the sword. And the reason why he's doing that is because he's going to have a torturous death because he thinks that they escaped. And that's, that's a dishonoring thing, and he's going to be punished very severely. So instead of that, he's going to, he's going to keep his honor, and he's going to throw himself on the, on the sword. So Paul yells out, stop, do not kill yourself, we're all here. And he stops the guy. And the, call, the, the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The big question what must I do? This, this thing you're preaching, this message of reconciliation, I've been hearing about it, and you've been talking about it, but now I'm serious about it. What does it mean to be saved? And Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved along with everyone else in your household. See, faith in Christ means to be saved. When you, when you make that decision to follow Jesus Christ and have faith in him, and faith and trust go hand in hand. When you have faith and you trust him, you will be saved. You will be reconciled with the almighty God. So what elements are this, this what are the elements of this message of reconciliation? Jesus is God, a supreme ruler. Man is sinful, running away from God. He doesn't seek God. God gave us a substitution, a way out. But we must respond in faith. And believe in the, Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We must, always, we must understand 
that it's because all who are truly true believers have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Every single one of you that believe that you're a Christian and you said, you know what, I made that confession of faith, I have said I am a Christian, you need to understand this reconciliation, this message. We have people all around us every day, people we work with, people in our families that do not believe in Jesus Christ. And how can I share the gospel? How can I share this basic message on the foundation of Jesus Christ if I don't understand this basics? Like Paul, we have all become servants. We're called to let God speak through us this message of reconciliation to people all around the world. But this is also important for us to know because there are many false gospels out there. There's many people claiming different ways to go to heaven. And you need to have a clear understanding of what the Bible says for us to go to heaven. So we can address those things and show people the truth. We must know this message, we must protect this message, and we must share this message. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for for Paul and and this beautiful explanation of the gospel and this message of reconciliation. Father God, I I pray and I hope that we all have the courage and, and, and have the faith to share this message with other people. Let us be bold, Lord, like Paul is bold. And let us share this, not out of obligation, not out of pressure, but out of love. Because we're so excited about this beautiful message of Jesus Christ that we are motivated to share it with everybody we can. Father God, thank you for everybody here and their love for you. And we ask you to continue to work in our lives. Bless this church as we continue to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Now we're